We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentator and recent show stand-in, Ross Feingold. Good evening, Gavin. And New Bloom's Brian Hughes. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing the new Premier's first week in office, Liming Zhe's brief court appearance in China, Taiwan's annual call for United Nations recognition, the future of classical Chinese in modern Taiwan, and some good news for Taiwan's tech. Tennis scene. But we'll begin with a government proposal to increase public sector wages. Now, President Tsai Ing-wen said on Wednesday of this week that a planned 3% pay hike for public sector employees next year is aimed at showing appreciation for their services and encouraging private enterprises to follow suit. The government employee pay rise is expected to affect some 580,000 civil servants and public school teachers, as well as several hundred thousand members of the military. And it will take effect from January of next year. The last time public sector employees received a pay rise was in July of 2011. Now the Cabinet estimates that the 3% pay hike will increase the government's annual payroll by 18 billion NT. Now there was much legislative agreement across party lines when the Cabinet announced the pay hike this week, with the KMT's Legislative Caucus head saying that she supports a reasonable pay rise for public sector workers and believes the initiative will boost the chances of the private sector raising wages. People First Party Legislative Caucus Head Chen Yijie said she believes the move will boost morale within the public sector and give an impetus to the private sector to also increase wages. Now, the new Power Party's Legislative Caucus leader, Xu Yongming, said that his party sees no problem with increasing pay for good-performing public servants as long as there are objective guidelines for doing so. And the head of the DPP's Legislative Caucus, Liu Jiaohao, said the move can lead to other sectors raising pay for their employees to, in his words, reflect the real growth of Taiwan's economy. Now, the government has been quick to dismiss charges that the pay rise is solely aimed at winning back the hearts and minds of the public sector, from which the core of the anti-pension reform protest movement comes from. So, Ross, can you see this public sector pay hike leading to the private sector hiking its wages as well? Well, it's interesting because in your comments, Gavin, you referred to several politicians who mentioned that, that maybe this would spur the private sector to, in tandem or follow along with a pay pay increase for their employees. But typically, the private sector already pays better or has other benefits that that are more attractive uh, to employees. The reason why many people in Taiwan still look at the public sector as an attractive option is the stability, right? Once you get in, uh, they tend not to have layoffs, and it's very difficult to fire people. There's a lot of protections for a civil service employee that a private sector employee doesn't enjoy. But but separate from that, generally speaking, the pay is already very good, and, and the pay in the private sector is going to be set by market forces, supply and demand, uh, etc., then needs the, the job skills that the p- private sector employers need, and a number of other factors. I, I So I don't see that happening. The private sector is going to raise wages when, when it's appropriate to do so for the private sector, and it has to do with the factors I just mentioned. And just because the government raises pay, uh, the private sector is not going to follow, and, and it's actually 
somewhat disappointing that so many politicians would cite that uh, as, as a reason why the private sector should follow along. They've all actually cited it. The Premier, like I said, the President cited it, the Premier cited it, and I've given you four part, the four main parties have cited it, and several other politicians have cited it. Brian, do you think this will actually spur pay rises in the private sector, or do you think it will just fall dead? Um, I think that if they actually did push for you know, a pay rise in the private sector, that would cause some controversy with um, you know, some of the, the large you know, business owners that have uh, opposed the labor forms that were passed recently. Sorry, Brian, I'm going to have to interrupt you there, because uh, not, not that I necessarily want to defend the large employers, but uh, l- let's think about the private sector in its entirety. So simply because the, the, the government raises wages and a number of politicians from the president on down have said, uh, we hope the private sector follows. And yes, some of the, the larger business conglomerates and their, their leadership have had a number of disputes with, with government over various types of policies. But let, let's think about the small and medium enterprises as well, which do make up a large portion of the employers here in Taiwan. So I, I don't see this as, as part of past or ongoing disputes between the government and a bunch of, uh, you, know, you could call them evil if you want, big business leaders. Let's look at the economy in its entirety. Now, why would small and medium enterprises, let alone large enterprises, um, follow along simply because the government says, oh, we hope you do this? Uh, if I was a small business person, or here, uh, Gavin, is your boss here at ICRT going to follow along simply because the government did it? This is a, a small organization. Um, are you going to follow along simply because the government said, uh, we hope you follow along. Of course not, right? Uh, when when it's good for the private sector to do so, they'll do so. Um, I mean, I think that is some of these uh, business groups. I mean, there are, you know, some of the business groups I've demonstrated this have been, you know, owners of uh, small and medium enterprise, uh, you know, kind of these, these business organizations um, representing business owners. I think in general, I mean, when you're a business owner or you're a boss, you know, you probably will oppose wage rises in that sense. Um, you know, you do want to cost costs and so forth. And here's the beauty of it, though. If you're employees don't like it, they can resign. Go, go take the test to join the civil service with its with its new higher wages. Again, I, I just don't see this as, as, as an impetus for, for the private um, sector to follow along. I mean, I, 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 in general, I don't, I don't see that happening because of uh, stagnating wages in Taiwan over, across the board. But I do, I do think that, you know, this kind of uh, claim that this is only done in order to raise private sector, you know, to, in the hopes that the private sector will eventually follow, that is mostly, I think, a disguise because, you know, they do want to get around that they do want to placate public servants um, after the pension reforms because you know obviously you do need public servants to run government and if they're unhappy then you have difficulty getting things done so the key point here is that this was done to get their votes mm-hmm. well, let's just be honest right well the government or to the, keep the, them happy the government did deny that though of course like i said of did, course did, did yeah because you know p- pension reforms are popular so <laughs> well of course, gavin as you, know, as you know in other other english-speaking countries uh, typically not in the united states or taiwan where, where we tend to speak american influenced english uh, but but in, in the realm of politics this is called election goodies, right? And that's the word that's typically used in places like like Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore. Uh, and, and this is just an election goodie with the local election coming up in 2018 and then national elections about 12, 12 13 months uh, after that in, in January 2020. I do, I do also think that uh, part of it is because just, you know, again, running a government is difficult if the people that run government are unhappy. For example, you know, it's been raised previously that uh, even the issue of pension reforms itself, if there is a judicial interpretation, you know, some of the justices on the council of grand justices also are receiving similar pensions. So, you know, you might see how that might influence their vote. Um, So it's a difficult problem. And, you know, 
I think that the government, you know, does want to keep the people. I mean, I mean, as I say, the Thai administration wants to keep the people that run government happy because you know it is afraid of you know losing control of elements of government. I mean, that is that is always just I think an inherent challenge of uh, public cent- sector pension reform. Right. Anyway, we shall move on there because that's obviously a bit of a tricky issue. No doubt, the civil servants though are probably rather happy. Although, is three percent big enough, Brian? Um. Well, I have to say, I think that, you know, people will always, you know, I, I do think that people will, I mean, I think some of the groups that I'm protesting will demand, you know, more. I don't well, think well that, that actually goes happening. to another another issue that uh, some of the politicians have been citing is uh, why this is so great. They said, oh, well, now uh, it'll be good for the economy because uh, several hundred thousand government employees have 3% more I think it's money over in their million, pocket so and they're going to spend the money in the economy, right? They're going to go shopping, uh, go to restaurants, etc. Uh, first of all, we know from, from lots of past experience, not just in Taiwan, but other economies that it doesn't work out that way. Just because you get a 3% raise, you don't immediately go to a department store or a restaurant and spend the money. Very often you save it. So uh, to, to suggest that 3% rise is going to be good for the economy uh, is is pretty silly. So, so to answer your question, Gavin, the, the number is so small for the individual that it really doesn't make a difference. It, it's just a little bit above inflation. You have taxes on the 3%. Uh, so uh, it, it's a large number for the government because if you look at the, the $18 billion, that's a lot of money, and they're, they're going to have to find that money somewhere within the budget. For the individual, a 3% raise really just is all but meaningless. So I'm sure they'll have, they're happy to take it, but they're not going to go out and, and buy a new car because they got a 3% raise. Uh, which I do think, you know, raises the fact that some people have said this is mostly symbolic in nature. Um, you know, that this is, again, a way to keep, you know, public servants happy. It's for election purposes, Brian. It's not going to keep them happy. <laughs> Right, moving on now. And Premier William Lai had a rather busy first week in office this week. Now he was greeted on his first Monday at work by two labour rights protests outside the Executive UN. On Tuesday and Wednesday, William Lai was called on to take the lead in typhoon damage control operations. But of course, the typhoon Talim never actually came to Taiwan and veered north. But with heavy rains forecast, Lai was still visible on cable television news visiting water management facilities. He was at the same time being credited for pushing the public sector pay rise plan through. And on Thursday of this week, he oversaw a revision to the government's 2018 general budget and also began reviewing plans to revise the workweek laws, which of course have been controversial since they were introduced last December. So a busy first week in office for Premier Lai Ross. So we'll begin with marks out of 10 for visibility and leadership. Well, certainly uh, he would deserve a 10 for that. So you've, you've referred to a number of things he did that kept him in the news. It showed him, I think more importantly than just being in the news, getting involved in the day-to-day operation of government. And that's ultimately what the Premier's job is, right? Uh, Making sure that the government agencies are operating, that they're doing their job, whether it's preparation for natural disasters such as typhoons, budgetary issues, etc. We didn't see him as much involved in national security issues, military, but it'll be coming as well. And we'll see him take take a profile uh, on the, the operation in the military, which as we know, involves a lot of policy issues, interaction with the legislative UN. So uh, as far as visibility, sure, he, he gets high marks for the first week. We'll see if he can keep up that energy level, though. 
Mm. I mean, I think that, you know, new when politicians such as Lai take office, you know, after that, we'll see if the kind of, you know, glow around Lai remains. I mean, Lai is extremely popular. I mean, one of his nicknames is uh, God Lai, which is a pretty memorable name for a politician. Yes, but that was given to him somewhat sarcastically by his political opponents. Yes, right? although he does have a kind a of political, he does have a sort of personality cult around him. And I think that, you know, Tsai is really counting on Lai to lend his prestige to her administration. But of course, you know, when you do come in on that kind of basis, you know, after something big happens, Sorry, Brian, did I hear you correctly? Did you say he has a personality cult, like kind of like Kim Jong Un? Well, you know, maybe maybe not that scale, but he does have a, a lot of adoration. I mean, and of course, he did when he was mayor of Tainan. Of course, he did. He was very visible. Mm-hmm. He was always out doing mm-hmm. things. I mean, obviously, the earthquake in Tainan. He was at the scene of one of the mm-hmm. building collapses, and then travelled around all the other building collapses. Very mm-hmm. busy there. So I think I think he has a reputation as a very active politician. I mean, well, that, that's one of the things that the premier does that they go around and visit different sites. I mean, the president does that as well, but the premier, you know, they're the person that is responsible for administration. And in the case of Lai, I think that, you know, he's, I think the Tsai administration is really counting on him to break apart from the technocratic image of Ling Chen and some of the other people in the cabinet. And so, you know, having a very dynamic role, I mean, that can only play out well for PR. Uh, just, you know, when, when things do happen, sometimes, you know, politicians, I mean, sometimes someone that heads up a uh, large, you know, is, you know, heads up a lot of things, sometimes they do have to take responsibility for things that they're not directly responsible. So, you know, one wonders if that will eventually taint Lai's prestige. This typhoon were you know, nothing happened, but we'll, we will see about the future. And obviously, he came in in his first week, said we're going to we're going to revise the work week laws. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's that's just been something that's you know been discussed forever. In the sense that you know this this whole uh, labor reforms you know ended up offending both sides. Nobody seemed really happy with that, and so you know, unsurprisingly, there's been talk about that. And I think that because Tsai doesn't want to present the image of backing down from this or having you know a kind of failed reform, it is probably get better to uh, you know raise this now that there's this kind of notion of change within. The administration with Lai coming into office. Well, there's nothing President Tsai could do to separate herself and her party, which has an overwhelming majority in the legislative union, or her government whether it's the past premier, Lin Chuan, or the new premier, William Lai, from this failed policy. So uh, putting William Lai out there as the, the person who says we're about to ha- have some reforms does not disassociate President Tsai. I mean, this, mm. this is really a not classic political mm. situation where you, 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 you broke it, you pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think she could disassociate herself from the, the policy failure. However, we do have to give uh, William Lai credit for taking on this issue in, in his very first week. But, but the key thing is going to be that both William Lai and President Tsai and those evil big business leaders that Brian referred to earlier, as well as the SME business leaders that I referred to earlier, uh, this time, hopefully, they'll actually talk to each other and get it right, as well as with the the involvement of of labor as well, uh, because uh, it's hard to imagine the, the political repercussions if they get it wrong a second time. Um, I mean, the the question of that is that I think that uh, we'll see if really Lai ends up being asked to take one for the team because, you know, this might also prove unpopular. I think, you know, I think because of the failure of last round in which, you know, both uh, business owners and labor groups were offended, which, you know, I don't know how you manage actually to offend both sides. That That's kind of a failure of PR. Um, and well, you could ask Gavin. He's very good at offending uh, all sides, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think that, that, that it's going to be very difficult to get around the fact that the first time around, Tai pushed for labor reform. 
platforms, you know, this happened. And so, you know, one year later, I mean, she might actually just face the same opposition from both groups. I mean, I think these mistakes might not be able to be undone. Well, one of the interesting things that that raises, uh, as far as what Brian was just describing with the challenges, is unlike Lin Chen, who actually had a background in in, uh, financial policy, he did have some business Mm -hmm. experience more than William Lai. Uh, William Lai does have the infrastructure experience uh, Gavin mentioned, uh, disaster relief, uh, earthquake relief in in Tainan. He doesn't have the background or the experience other than his period as as one of many legislators and and as a minority party legislator at the time. Uh, He does not have a background in these kinds of issues. So to be fair to him, there's there's a learning curve in how to placate both sides in in this dispute, labor and employers. Uh, So... uh, tough challenge for him, uh, and he doesn't have the background, but he doesn't have the time uh, or the luxury of, of letting the issue slide because people are so unhappy about it, and as Brian indicated, uh, President Tsai has kind of given this to him to take the lead on, mm. and we're not too far away from the next round of elections. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, he has techni- he's a, someone that built his career as a politician, less so as a technical expert or someone that was named to a political position but after but that, work, that works as a mayor, right? Mm. Because as the mayor, you, you uh, uh, make sure that the traffic is running, you know, some of the things that Koenja has tackled here in Taipei. You do do the disaster relief that, that William Lai has, has had to do in, in Tainan, not just earthquake and, and typhoon, but also dengue fever. Uh, but but the premier job is very different, and uh, you know, it's mm. going to be a big learning curve. Um, I think that Tsai might more or less have her policy, you know, her policy aims. But I think the real question is, you know, can William Lai put a good face on that or, you know, package it in a way that it becomes acceptable to, you know, both sides? And I, I'm not sure that's possible at this point. Right. And we shall move on because no doubt we'll be getting back to the premiere quite a lot in some coming up episodes. Anyway, Taiwanese human rights advocate Li Mingjie pleaded guilty of subversion of state power during a brief court appearance in China's Hunan province on Monday of this week before being remanded back in detention after the hearing. Now, Li admitted to attempting to subvert state power, with Peng Yuhua, a Chinese national, said to have created several discussion groups that have been critical of Beijing. Now, Li also admitted to publishing articles and videos online related to the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, the cover, the color rather, revolutions in Eastern Europe, and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Now, if that wasn't enough, he also confessed to helping Peng establish a company that, in well, reports have said, aimed to topple the Chinese government. Now, reports from Beijing say the court is expected to rule on Li's case within the next three months. Now, his mother and wife were in court for the hearing which has been described as being rather scripted. There have also been reports that the trial is being used by Beijing to solidify its new laws governing NGOs in China. So, Brian, you watched the hearing. Obviously, the hearing was broadcast over a mm-hmm. webcam, and we, mm-hmm. God, we saw it here in Taiwan on the news. What did you make of the hearing on Monday? I mean, obviously, it is a show trial. I mean, that goes without speaking. I think that uh, it's just it's just a bigger question of what is trying to, China trying to accomplish here, and for what reasons exactly did they you know, arrest Li Mingzhou, which is somewhat still of a question. Um, I mean, you know, obviously, these kind of tactics do end up pushing Taiwan further. I mean, intimidation tactics sometimes, you know, they, they backfire in, in just, you know, you really want to woo Taiwan, uh, Taiwan over not to frighten it. And Li Mingzhou, it, it is drawing a very harsh line in the sand. I mean, there, there are questions about, you know, the trial, like, who is this, this Peng man? Like, these Chinese friends 
friends actually claim that they don't know who this man is, his, his Chinese friends. And so that is quite surprising. But I mean, obviously, the NGOs, do you think this is something to do with the NGO law in China uh, as well, Brian? Um, it is possible. I mean, that's one of the reasons that people have pointed to that, you know, China is trying to crack down on foreign NGOs. I mean, this, these kind of charges about color revolutions or the breakup of, uh, you know, seeking to break up China and dissolve it in, uh, that's, that's one of these, you know, things that the CCP is always lashing out at the threat of, you know, that foreign forces will try to undermine China and break it up the same way, you know, the Soviet Union was broken up through quote unquote color revolutions. Um, it is possible, but also it is, you know, if so, the NGO law, that, that's not just Taiwan, you know, that is, that is you know, any foreign power. So it is a question, is, is Lee specifically targeting Taiwan? Like, is his treatment targeting Taiwan, or is it something much broader? Or is it both? I, I don't think it's targeting NGOs or Taiwan. I think it's just uh, an individual who was involved with dissidents in China and, and helping the dissidents go about their work, however admirable we believe that to be from here in Taiwan, which is democracy and has freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. Uh, anyone who does that, whether they're a Chinese national or, or a national of another country, uh, is going to face prosecution in, in China. So I, I, I don't think it's an NGO issue, or I, and I don't think it's targeted at, at Taiwan at all. Uh, anyone talking to dissidents, as Li Mingzhou was doing, or talking to democracy advocates, uh, people trying to expand the, the public space, the public discourse space in China, is liable for prosecution. And and, and uh, had he stayed here in Taiwan and communicated with uh, his counterparts in China, provided them information about democracy development and organizing uh, democracy promotion activities, uh, he would have been safe and could have continued to do his work. He took a risk by going to China. Um, that, yeah, that, it, it, is, it is unfortunate. We, we, we certainly condemn the behavior of China in, in not allowing uh, people to have a freedom of speech or assembly uh, and, and not recognizing the rights that we consider uh, very normal here in Taiwan. Uh, but uh, again, I, I think it, it's not directed at NGOs or Taiwan specifically. It's one individual, and it would have happened to anyone who was, who's doing this kind of activity in China. It's hard to say, because I think that, you know, he might have been caught in the crossfire. I mean, that's, that's again, the, the circumstances under which he was arrested are still not very clear, despite, you know, China's claims. Um, you know, Li was, he was definitely doing some of the things China's accusing of, of, you know, top forming WeChat groups and talking about democracy and so forth. Um, and, you know, that kind of surprises me, because, you know, obviously WeChat is the most monitored platform by China. So that was not exactly a very good way to go about it. And so, you know, I think the bigger question is that, you know, because of his background, he just happened to be a staffer of the DPP and did tar China target him on that basis. He was, I mean, he was a junior staffer, he has, he has, frankly, he somewhat. A, yeah, he has kind of odd political background. At the risk, risk of sounding rude, uh, he, he, was, he wasn't a very important person in the party headquarters. Um, mm -hmm. He was not. I mean, you know, despite these reports claiming that he was very well known before that, he was not very well known before this. Anyway, we have to take a short break now on whether Li Mingzhi was important or not well known before this case he's quite important and quite well known now anyway so we'll be back after these short commercials Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin this half of the show with the 72nd United Nations General Assembly in New York and Taiwan's annual call for recognition and greater participation in UN agencies. Now, Deputy Foreign Minister Paul Jung on Monday of this week said that Taiwan will ask its diplomatic allies to speak out in support of the country's meaningful participation in UN-affiliated agencies, as has been the case in previous years. Of course, the Tsai administration opted to follow the previous 
previous policy of the administration of Ma Ying-jeou in that regard and basically didn't attempt to apply to join the UN. Now, normally we hear of meetings being organised to take place in the United States on the sidelines of the global chinwag, but it's been quite quiet. Some might say too quiet on that front this year. But then, Ross, I know you're not a great fan of those heavily touted meetings. Right. We've talked about this uh, in the context of various international events to which Taiwan, unfortunately, is not invited. And then inevitably, the government will send a delegation of uh, officials and they'll rent a room near the main event and, and they'll meet with government officials from countries that are participating in the main event. And then they come to this other room to see the visit with the officials from Taiwan. And Taiwan says, we had 40 meetings on the sidelines of the main meeting. And I'm sure a lot of the government officials from those other countries, they come to those sideline meetings and say, well, that really is unfortunate that you can't come to the main event. But nothing changes. Uh, so uh, we, we do have to be question we do have to be skeptical and question whether this strategy actually works uh, maybe a better strategy would just to be publicly say well you don't want us there we won't come there i mean gavin do you go to a party that you're not invited to i simply don't go to parties <laughs> <laughs> but but this is a party that taiwan does want to be be a, invited to unfortunately they're not invited so uh, hanging out on the sidelines i'm not sure if that's the, the best approach uh, there, there's probably more productive approach to take than um, having the the sideline events. Mm. Um, I think that this year, you know, mostly it is the same usual activity. I mean, there are always events in New York City that are, you know, uh, organi- you know, organizations, civil society organizations that push for UN inclusion of Taiwan, and you know, that's gone on as usual. Which, you know, but, but keep in mind, year. Brian, th- those organizations this year they're doing it again, so that's uh-huh. separate from the government. That's right, that's separate from the government. But those organizations are kind are of disappointed of, of the, yeah, gov- the government. Yeah. Because I think that they expected really big things from the Thai administration. And so, in terms of you know being a DPP administration that takes office, uh, I mean, the demand for UN inclusion for Taiwan has been a, pan-green, a, a historical pan-green demand for a long time, particularly among, I think, uh, overseas, you know, members of the overseas Taiwanese movement that are influential on the DPP at times. And so, you know, they're, they're not too happy with the time Institute for that. I mean, that I think the, the time Institute with many things... Uh, even with regards to the Mingjia case, it sometimes lets non-state actors, you know, take on the roles that people expect it to. I mean, that is possibly passivity or just being overly cautious, and you know, or maybe just relying on you know uh, means that are not official, or you know, having meetings on the sidelines or those kind of tactics. But the interesting thing is that for eight years, when Ma Ying-jeou was in office, uh, the DPP, as well as the civil society organizations that are uh, friendly to the to the DPP's political views on Taiwan status, were very critical of Mayang Zhou's foreign policy and specifically of his his policies vis-a-vis UN membership and UN organizations, which was a departure from President Chen's uh, very vocal attempts to mm. apply for membership in the UN. Uh, but but they're, the government's not doing anything different from what President think, Ma did, that, and they criticized that, uh, him for eight years. Yeah, I think that's that's why they are also unhappy with Tsai, because you know, they're expecting a radical departure from Ma. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I tend to be wary of this kind of uh, minimalism regarding, you know, the demand for UN inclusion. That is to say that, you know, that even asking for that is, is too much. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of surprising. I mean, the Tsai Administration did do some things. It produced like a video which had over seven hundred thousand views on YouTube, actually. Um, and you know, mostly it is counting on these kind of soft power means um, to try to, you know, 
to try to advocate for UN inclusion, but it's not very direct. They don't want to take very confrontational tactics. It's usually, you know, hi- highlighting issues such as the environment or, you know, that Taiwan has rule of law or how can Taiwan be a partner in these kind of broader problems facing the world rather than, But you know, all the key decision makers at, at the UN, um, you know, the major countries uh, or the, the countries that actively participate in the UN-affiliated organizations that Taiwan wants meaningful participation in, they know this. Hmm. I mean, they definitely do. 700,000 people watching think, a YouTube video is, is not uh, going to change their decision-making process in Berlin or Paris or London or, or Washington, D.C. on this issue. I don't think so. So I think I think people were expecting more creativity from the Thai administration. For example, you know, I think the ICAO campaign was probably more effective, relatively speaking, because you know, that raised the issue of Taiwan being excluded from air traffic uh, management bodies. And so that you know presents an obvious danger to the international community writ large. But that's not a convincing argument, because Taiwan, uh, Ta- Taiwan International Airport is one of the busiest airports in Asia. So it's one of the contradictory things. So I think raising that contradiction is, is useful. Um, I mean, you know, that maybe wasn't done as much in the video. Yeah, but the other countries are saying, you know, we do talk to you. We talk to you outside of the, the ICAO, and it hasn't impacted I think, I think that, uh, air safety. I think that raising that issue of, uh, you know, political hypo- hypocrisy is, is useful. But I think, again, you know, there's this fear of offending the relevant bodies or offending, you know, America or the UN or, you know, the international community just by pushing too much. And, you know, I'm, I'm worried of that because I don't know. I, I think that sometimes, you know, creativity is needed or maybe more confrontation on some of these kind of critical issues. Otherwise, you know, Taiwan will remain in a political limbo. But it has power. I mean, it's obviously going on at the moment, the UN General Assembly meeting with all the big bods. But it's, it's very quiet here this year, I've noticed, because usually this week in Taiwan, there's usually just dozens of stories about the government wanting UN this, UN that, UN the other. What do you think is different this year, Ross? Well, there, there is an environment where uh, China is increasingly involved in an international organization. So let's, let's put aside the conversation we often hear that, oh, China's rising, its economy is, is rising. Uh, we have to keep in mind that China now has, has moved beyond just uh, expanding the size of its military or or trumpeting how large its economy has become. We see them very active in international organizations, creating new ones like the Infrastructure Investment Bank or initiatives related to One Belt, One Road. So even within the international organizations, whether they are or are not affiliated with the UN, the, the bar or the difficulty for Taiwan to have meaningful participation, frankly, is is increasingly tougher than in the past. So what we may see here in Taiwan as as a more quiet approach versus the past, it might actually just be a combination of the factors we're talking about. So Brian talking about uh, maybe the government didn't want to be seen as pushing too hard, uh, and I'm saying that China is so well entrenched in these organizations uh, that uh, we kind of reached a point where there is not much Taiwan could do on its own, frankly, unless the, the view from Washington Washington or London or Paris or Berlin is going to change, and it seems very unlikely that it will. I think that's true. Yeah, I think that uh, the question is between what changed between this year and last year, because I think the the situation with China has not shifted so dramatically. I mean, you know, China has occupied you know a, a key place in international organizations for a long time, and whether now, last year, or in the future, that's not going to change. Um, I just think that maybe there's a little change in terms of the. I mean, there was some change in terms of the the government pushing on this issue, maybe. Right. We shall no doubt talk about that issue at the same time next year.
But we'll turn to education now, which we don't often do on Taiwan this week because, well, we're not really the educated types, are we? <laughs> well, Brian is. So is Ross, but I'm not. So that's all we don't do. <laughs> anyway, a proposal by the Curriculum Review Committee to reduce the proportion of classical Chinese content in the high school Chinese curricula was upheld this week, and that means the proportion will be between 45 and 55 percent. Now there had been proposals to reduce the figure to about 30 percent, or to completely eliminate classical Chinese from the curriculum guidelines and allow each school or teacher to determine the percentage. And there were also calls to allow. Students to choose either English heavy or classical Chinese heavy course loads. All of which, of course, has brought up rather differing opinions on the rather thorny issue of the importance of classical Chinese in modern Taiwan's education system. So, Brian, where do you sit here? More classical Chinese, more English, or more Taiwanese? Well, I don't know about English or Taiwanese, but I think classical Chinese is—I mean, it is an ancient language. I mean, it has a very different syntax and grammar, and the word usage is sometimes radically different from, uh, you know, contemporary Chinese. I mean, I think that it's—if you're interested in language, of course, it's something useful to learn. Or if you're interested in history, that is to say, the history of China. But in terms of you know teaching people that may not have such interest as part of their regular you know language learning process, that does seem rather strange, or even absurd. That you know that this is close to half or even more of the language learning materials that are used, um, and that does seem to be political to me. Because you know, I think that uh, literature or language—you know, what languages are taught in schools—that's a way to you know uh, create a sense of cultural identity. And so, you know, obviously, having classical Chinese taught in Taiwan is a way to claim that you know Taiwan is culturally Chinese, or that you know Taiwan preserves a cultural Chinese tradition that has been lost in the Chinese mainland. Those are valid points, and uh, there's also the, the the aspect that many experts have pointed out is the the foundation that these uh, course materials give students uh, does produce some very extraordinary people, people capable of doing extraordinary things with science and math, for example, or technology industry here in Taiwan. Uh, and uh, some experts will, will say that the foundation comes from learning uh, these extraordinarily difficult Chinese language materials. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's creating a way of thinking, a way of learning. And, and uh, the experts could argue the merits of Western-style education, Chinese-style education, foundation in Chinese-style classics. Uh, but but they're the facts show that it, it, it does, and then there's criticisms. There's too much memorization in, in the education system. We could talk about that as well. But but we know that uh, this education system has produced some extraordinarily intelligent, talented people. Um, at the same time, I think that there could be, you know, there's always room for improvement. I mean, I think that the equivalent is, you know, for example, the teaching of Old English in, you know, in America or the UK. I mean, you know, like Beowulf, you know, is unreadable by modern standards. I mean, you know, even contemporary translations. Well, uh, I'm going to challenge English. you on that, Brian. So I'd, I'd say maybe a better comparison is to say it's like learning Latin and, and uh, maybe students coming out of the American education system where uh, I but studied would, would be is better a, off a, if is we all had is, is a different Latin. language and it's if taught we all had as a Latin different language. Latin on us, right? I didn't have Latin forced. I, I took a different <laughs> foreign language. When, when I was being educated, but it was an option. I took French instead of. Um, I mean, basically, that's what I'm advocating, though. That you know, it's, it's useful as an elective. I mean, you know, it's something that you could learn if you're interested and so forth. But you know, as a, a part of the curriculum, I mean, that is is quite extreme. But do you think maybe because obviously the argument is how much the percentage should be classical Chinese, if any, mm -hmm. or do you think the other? Of course, the argument is schools and teachers should be allowed to work out how much classical Chinese, and of course, the students 
are asking for more English heavy courses. Do you think, so you do think this should be a central government matter or do you think it should be up to each individual school? I think in that case it would just divide against uh, divide between political lines because you know similar to the textbook issue and how that was kind of resolved with this you know the, the, the occupation of the Ministry of Education in 2015 was resolved by the claim that schools would be allowed to choose their textbooks and that teachers would be allowed to choose you know which textbook to go with whether the pro-Taiwan one or the more Chinese-centric you know version of history and so I think I would divide along those lines I mean would that make people happy I'm I, I don't know. But. Well, Gavin, as you know, I'm a free market kind of guy, so uh, I certainly would support <laughs> less central government micromanagement of schools, uh, elementary schools. Does the central government need to be managing this issue uh, for elementary schools all the way this from Taipei to Kaohsiung? This is actually high schools. Or high schools? Well, it doesn't matter, I think high right? schools actually already divide, I think, politically. I mean, you know, some high schools teach more about, you know, uh, three principles of people and so forth. And so, you know, I think there'll be that kind of divide between, you know, which high schools are teaching this kind of content and how they teach it. So then let parents decide which school they want their kids to go to. Right. And in fact, if you must know, I actually learned classical Chinese when I was at university. Uh, Are you lecturing in these topics now (laughs) in Taiwan? No, but I can remember some of it. Anyway, and before we go today, sisters Jan Yong Ran and Jan Hao Ching gave Taiwan tennis a major boost on Sunday after they became the first two Taiwanese players to reach the finals of the same Grand Slam competition in separate events. Now, Jan Yong Ran won the her first Grand Slam title at the US Open when she took the women's doubles with Martina Hingis, while Jan Hao Ching and Michael Venus of New Zealand were runners-up in the mixed doubles at Flushing Meadows. Now, while you might have thought we weren't educated enough to talk about classical Chinese, the three of us in the studio today are far less sporty than people might think. So, Ross, did you jump up and down when Jan Yong Rang did very well at the US Open? Of course, you're from New York. Yes. Uh, and I did watch uh, many of the U.S. Open matches. We do have to keep in mind that doubles uh, doesn't attract as much attention from the sporting world as singles do. And mixed doubles attracts even less attention, arguably, than uh, same-sex doubles. So, uh, yeah, it's nice, but probably not the biggest deal in the sports world. And it wasn't a Taiwan team, whether or not the sisters were competing together, but they weren't com- competing together with another uh, athlete from Taiwan. They were competing with uh, a partner from another uh, place. So uh, the media is not reporting this. The international sports media is not reporting this as, hey, it's the Taiwan players. Uh, so I-, I think we have to have some perspective from outside Taiwan, not just sitting here in Taiwan and asking us, like, are you proud for Taiwan's athletes? Uh, this is very similar to some of the conversations around the university games as well, frankly, that people outside Taiwan are not looking at this as, wow, the Taiwan sports, uh, Taiwan athletes, they're doing really well. That's just not how it's viewed. Brian, you're from New York as well. So there you go. Um, yes, but I don't pay as much attention to sports, I think. Uh, <laughs> what I do have to say is that I think that, you know, the fact that uh, it is, you know, someone uh, a player from Taiwan with a player that's not from Taiwan, sometimes that does have a way of, you know, boosting Taiwan's international credibility. And so I think that's part of the interest in this. Um, that, you know, there is there is a, a highly skilled Taiwanese player working with, you know, a player that is not from Taiwan. I mean, I think Taiwan, in terms of, you know, sporting events are always an attempt to, you know, they're always an arena for show, showcasing Taiwan on the international stage. And so, you know, I think that's, that's kind of how this is being read, that as a triumph, you know, this is a way of, you know, outreaching to the international world or connecting with international. That might be, again, 
again, that might be how it's read here in Taiwan, but but the international sports media, which I think is the is, issue, is with, uh, not saying like, "Wow, Taiwan is producing great tennis players." Here's two more. That that is just not the narrative. Right? It tends to be about the individuals. This applies to all tennis players, right? So whether we're talking about uh, the the John sisters or the the, the more well known uh, men's and women's tennis players, uh, the focus tends to be on the individual, not where they come from. And so I think that's right about your uh, comment about the university that you know that is also the same issue with regards to you know how much does the international spring community actually care about this no it doesn't yeah and that does my perception as well even for someone that didn't know about the sports so, 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 I, so I, I guess what you're saying is if taiwan wants to be globally known as a tennis nation it has to win the davis cup or well or the world cup soccer would be better but i mean we're talking about <laughs> tennis so i guess it has to be the davis cup doesn't it because that's countries the davis cup is tennis countries anyway of course the jan sisters aren't taiwan's only well-known tennis players because of course we had Cher su wei who of course was the Wim- wimbledon women's doubles title winner in 2013 and 2014 with china's peng shui well another, there you another, go another, another <laughs> double another double no but tennis. but there you go because she's com- she was competing with a chinese athlete which is her right i am not criticizing her for who she picks as a doubles partner. But given uh, China's size compared to Taiwan, and how, however you want to measure that, whichever metric you want to use, economics, soft power, etc., uh, of course the fact that she was from Taiwan is, is just not an important part of the conversation when she won the doubles match with Peng Shui. No, it was a women's doubles match. There we go. And, of course, there was Lu Yenxuan, of course. He's a male. And he was the... In fact, he was the first Taiwanese player to reach the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam event in 2010 when he reached the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. Actually, yeah, sorry, sorry to cut you off. I've got actually a bigger sports issue and, and one where, where I'll say the fact that he, the athlete comes from Taiwan is getting a lot of coverage is the Chicago Cubs have brought up uh, a young baseball player uh, surnamed Sung this week from, from their minor league team and he he's, made his major league debut. Today, in fact, as we're recording this show, That's he's right. making his major league debut for the Chicago Cubs That's against right. the New York Mets at Wrigley Field. And that gets more focused that he is from Taiwan. That, that uh, And I, I'm a baseball fan, so uh, I'm you know, speaking with some familiarity with this, that the the baseball broadcasters, for example, they tend to uh, speak at length, oh, he's this player is from, you know, fill in the place, whether it's in the Caribbean or Asia, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. That does get some conversation. Yeah, he's from Kaohsiung. He's a right-hander. I'm very impressed by your baseball knowledge, Kevin. There you go, I know. Can you play? Yeah, there you go. But you're, are you a Mets fan? Yes, I am. Oh, yeah. No, Brian's. Well, uh, I'm not a particularly sports guy, but uh, you know, I grew up in a town that was full of Yankee fans. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it does seem like there's a difference between team sports and you know sports with uh, lesser competitors, you know, not as much competitors such as tennis. And that's where we'll game, set, and match. Oh, a tennis joke. The show this week here on Taiwan this week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Good night. And Brian Hugh. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan this week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps, and don't. Forget forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous episodes. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.